in the early 70s, as things take a more radical turn, that is reflected in what becomes known as black exploitation. These are low budget movies, typically. Sometimes they're actually distributed by major American studios, like American International and producers like Roger Corman and so on. They were cranking out all kinds of movies. This film, Coffee, from 1973 that we're going to talk about now, was made by American International, one of these low budget operations. You know what? It was distributed by MGM. The same MGM that did all the glossy musicals and all, all the uh, sweet idealized white picket fence movies, they're distributing this black exploitation film. Another attribute of, of black you know, going for the box office, going for a black audience specifically, you know, in downtown theaters. I saw a lot of these movies in downtown theaters where I was the only white person in the audience. I'll put it out there, right? You know, I mean, I, I'm sitting there because I want to see this movie, but it's not made for me, quotation marks or anything. It's not made for me necessarily. These movies, ironically, oftentimes, most often were made so in front of the camera, it's mostly black talent and the white characters oftentimes are the villains. And, and the villains would be someone in uniform, be a police officer or government official, whatever, a corrupt person, right? So that kind of dynamic. But behind the camera, it was oftentimes, you know, white directors like Jack Hill and screenwriters and so on. So that kind of dynamic there. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And for this episode for Black History Month, we're going to talk about briefly about the career of Sidney Poitier and also about black exploitation movies such as Coffee. So, Mike, set the stage for us. Where do we want to start with Sidney Poitier, who unfortunately passed recently, but had such an amazing career? There's so much to talk about. Where do we start? Well, in an earlier podcast episode, Marie and I had talked about Sidney Poitier in terms of the overall career, and we wanted to revisit him today in a sense, in a sad way, really, because as Marie said, he passed away recently, and so many of the obituaries mentioned him as a breakthrough figure, and he really was a Black leading man like that, who had, and it's a, it's a loaded term, so I usually put quotation marks around it, like crossover appeal, if you will, but he appealed to both Black audiences and white audiences, arguably even more to white audiences in the sense of, you know, that his films for a long stretch in the 50s and, and 60s into the 70s did really well at the box office. So that's clearly, you know, mainstream, and again, a word that's loaded, but, you know, in terms of movie going, a lot of people went to see him. In terms of what he represented, I mean, I know this firsthand in the sense that in 1995, when Sidney Poitier received the Kennedy Center Honors, I met him at the ceremony, and I was struck, as everybody is struck who's ever met the man, his dignity. There was this gravitas to him, and it's just, you know, it was so impressive just to be around him, just to talk with him a little bit, because, like, every sentence was so beautifully sculpted. I, I actually you talk about language that way sometimes. When, when language is sculpted, it's not just a matter of good diction, it's the cadence. And, and also with that sort of, you know, the sort of lilt he had to, to the voice as well, it's mesmerizing just to be around somebody like that. Now, again, in terms of the importance that Marie alluded to, you know, Poitier is working in theater in the late 1940s. He's in New York. He's really scraping and scrambling for a while, but he does break through. His first movie, No Way Out in 1950, already starts, as it starts his career, starts the sense of him as a breakthrough performer in terms of playing characters of color who have got to make it in a world that's not always receptive to anyone of color. And so by the time you get to the movies that come along in the next few years, think about the 50s, Blackboard Jungle, the defiant ones. Let me pause on that for a moment, 1958, because there you have, you know, Poitier and Tony Curtis as escaped prisoners literally chained together, the white man chained to the black man. It, it's really, it's a Stanley Kramer movie, so it's not subtle. But, you know, the fact that the two of these guys might not like each other and, and they have, would have reason to fight with each other, but they got to work together. 
And, and you know, and who could miss the message, right? That whites and blacks need to work together, need to work it through, all that. And, and the, you know, the, the, the liberal message movie, if you will. And I'm kind of smiling there because these are important messages, but Marie's smiling too, because when you think about a Stanley Kramer movie, you think like, gosh, it's like a club to the head sometimes. But you know, honestly, joking aside, sometimes you need a club to the head. And, and so the point I'm making here is when you look at movies in the 50s with Sidney Poitier, typically he's playing characters who are overtly dealing with issues of racial identity and so on. He does it, and these movies do it in a way that is, when I say humanistic, I mean the fact that, you know, we need to get along, we need to work together, and so on. I think his greatest film from that early period, uh, I mean, in fact, I use this film in, in, in a course I teach, is A Raisin in the Sun from 1961, because he had, he had starred in Raisin in the Sun on stage, and of course then starred in it in, in the movie version. But the terrific complexity of a character like that, you know, it, you know it's Lorraine Hansberry play, and it's a, it's a black family on the south side of Chicago. They finally have an opportunity to move to a better neighborhood, as they say. It's a, it's a white neighborhood, and what should they do, and so on. But the conflicted nature of the character played by Sidney Poitier is brilliantly captured in this performance of someone who wants to please his family and do the right thing and so on, but a man who does have his faults and his weaknesses and shortcomings and however you want to put that, and, and Poitier embodies all of that. So by the early 1960s, and he's become a movie star in the 50s, by the early 60s, he's one of the major movie stars. And this is, uh, you know, uh, I don't mind repeating myself on important things like this. You know, it was almost unprecedented, it basically was unprecedented, to have a black man become a Hollywood movie star like that. When we talk about, you know, other black performers from earlier decades, yes, they're stars, but usually from musical theater and they'll pop up here and there, but their careers primarily would be on the stage or in movies very much showcased as performing talents on. Here we're talking about an actor, someone who, you know, plays out these, you know, fully embodied characters within the narrative and so on. That's a different consideration, really, in terms of, you know, narrative, having a, a black character like that to carry the film. And so by the early 60s, he finally does, when he wins the Academy Award for Lilies of the Field in 1963, he's the first, let's put this in context, the first black performer ever to win an Academy Award was Hattie McDaniel, Best Supporting Actress, Gone with the Wind, 1939. The second black actor to ever win an Academy Award was Sidney Poitier, Best Actor, 1963, Lilies of the Field. And again, that's a case where, you know, he's a, a well-intentioned, really good man helping a, a, you know, a convent, you know, good causes, good efforts, goodwill, all that. He embodies that kind of optimistic, idealistic sense of the civil rights movement. He's very much involved in the civil rights movement, but, but in his movies and in his activism, it's that sort of humane, I don't want to say gentle, because he wasn't always gentle in, in his roles and on so on, but, but a more the humanist impulse there. And that leads us up to what is his miracle year. And Marie and I have talked about this before, but we'll talk about it again. Uh, 1967, it's a truly amazing year. He does Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. He does In the Heat of the Night. He does To Serve with Love. Three films that click critically and commercially. Very few actors ever, white, black, you name it, have ever had a year like that. It's one of the most amazing years for any actor ever. And uh, of the three films, as, as you and I talked some more, Marie, in the Heat of the Night won the Academy Award for Best Picture. And I think of the three films, it's, it's the strongest. I use it in the course I teach for that reason. But let me turn it back to you uh, in terms of, uh, I know you're really fond also of Patch of Blue, which is a film he did in, in, in the early 60s. So why don't you talk a bit about how you respond to Sidney Poitier? 
You know, I'm glad you mentioned that you used um, In the Heat of the Night in a course, because so do I. Helen Mitchell and I use it in film and philosophy because it's such a great example of ideology. And it works just as well as when it came out in 1967. But of course, my favorite Sidney Poitier movie of all time is 1965's A Patch of Blue, because I kind of stumbled across it on regular TV, you know, where you have to like adjust the rabbit ears kind of stuff and watched it and then discovered it like a couple of times later, like, oh, that movie's on. I remember how much I love that movie. And it's such a wonderful movie about a, a man who meets a woman who is blind in a park. And of course she can't see, so she doesn't see that he is black. So they start up a relationship and a friendship that isn't based on anything except who they are. It's not about what you look like or where you fit into society. And he has said in interviews, obviously before he died, that there wasn't a month that went by where somebody didn't come up to him and say, you know, I saw you in a patch of blue and it just made such a huge impact on me. Thank you for making that movie. So I think it was a personal favorite of his because he knew it was such an audience favorite. But you're right, 1967 was the year. And honestly, you know, when you think about what it takes to put a movie together, to make three movies that year that did that well, I mean, I think a lot of people made three movies a year, but not that did that well. I mean, starting with Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, if you haven't seen this movie, you need to see this and The Stepford Wives and then watch Get Out again. Because, you know, those three movies together are so powerful in terms of the past, and the future and the present. What do you want to say, Mike, about Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Well, think about the Sidney Poitier character or character type, if you will. In Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, the premise is, it's a Stanley Kramer film, so the, the premise is like really basic and, and obvious. And, and again, very important for the time period, 1967. Bear in mind that in 1967, marriage between blacks and whites was illegal in 17 American states, including Maryland at that point. The laws were start, you know, Loving v. Virginia, the, the Supreme Court was gonna change all that in that very time period. But when this film was being made, in that many states, it would have still been illegal to, to marry. With it, again, based on the Supreme Court decision that year, things changed quickly in terms of the law, at least. So it's a bold film in that respect because Poitier is a, He's a black doctor. He's just, you know, really well-educated and, and, and just very impressive in terms of a curriculum vita. You know, just a really impressive character. He falls in love with a young woman played by Catherine Houghton, who is Catherine Hepburn's niece. And, of course, that character's parents are played by Spencer Tracy in his final film role. He was quite ill when he did it, and Catherine Hepburn. And the fact that they are, quote-unquote, liberals, and yet this is going to test their liberalism. It's one thing to say you're a white liberal and, oh, yes, I'm all for racial harmony and intermarriage and you name it, you know, I'm all for it. But then when your daughter comes home and says, I want you to meet my fiance and, uh, oh, yeah, did I mention he's black? <laughs> you know, so, you know, it, whether that's still an issue for people today, I'll, I'll leave open. But, but it certainly was an issue for people in 1967. So the film has that going for it. Now, here's one of the things I find really curious. Our collective national obsession with race, with, with skin color the fact that a black person and a white person would want to marry. And guess who's coming to dinner? It's treated comically and dramatically. I mean, the film does have a, a nice kind of balance there of how people respond and how it plays out. So that becomes the big issue, the big ticket issue. Can you accept, at the level of the parents, can you accept 
something like this. And, and the Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy character have a number of conversations along that line. Here's what's curious to me. Race is the big obsession here. Should our, you know, we're a white family, should our daughter, you know, marry a black man? Now, in terms of the Poitier persona, again, he plays such an intelligent and well-spoken and accomplished and on and on. Who could say no to him? And I'm, I'm being somewhat facetious here. You know what I'm getting at? It's just like, you know, if you're looking for faults or, or, or drawbacks or anything that might give pause, my gosh, you look at his, his background, you look at his career, you, you look at the way he presents himself. Anyone, I, you know, I, I, almost any racist even would say, you know, he's a good guy. And so, you know, I'm, I'm joking about this, but not joking in the sense that Poitier tended to play. And I think sometimes in his later career, that could be, I don't want to say a hindrance, but just simply that he had that image. You know what I mean? That kind of like really strong and idealistic and, and unyielding in the sense. And I think maybe that did somewhat limit the kinds of roles that he might be offered or they could do, because he was just known for playing roles like what he played in Guess Who's who's coming to dinner. So anyway, long-winded way of saying that there's this racial obsession in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, should a white person marry a black person. The issue that is never really mentioned here, and I would think in other circumstances it would be mentioned extensively, indeed even be the focus for family dissension, would be the fact that the character played by Poitier is 37 years old. The character played by Catherine Houghton is 23 years old. Now, I would think, let's push race to the side, if we can do that, push race to the side. You know, you're, you're having a family dinner, meet my fiance. Oh, well, yeah, I know I'm 23, but I'm an adult, you know, young adult. And by the way, my, my boyfriend, my future husband, he's 37. That's enough of an age difference that I think in a lot of families, there would be some dinner table discussion of that. It is not really discussed here. Uh, Marie, how did that strike you? Because to me, it is striking in terms of our, our national obsession with race, so much so that other hot button issues, if you will, become quickly so secondary in nature that as if they're not even there. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because it's so not even an issue. And I think it's because he's such a catch. He's actually somebody who's going to take care of her in the way that you would think of in the 60s, which we wouldn't think of today. In terms of like being in the right place at the right time, that Supreme Court case you alluded to, Loving versus Virginia, was decided in 67. So, and I hate to use the word zeitgeist because I honestly don't really think I know what it means, except for the fact that this was all coming together and all gelling. That case would be resolved at the same time Sidney Poitier would be on fire with three of his best movies, In the Heat of the Night and To Serve with Love. So I think he was the right person to lead that charge. The fact that he played an older character to the, you know, the love interest in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, I think at the time worked because it was just sort of expected that any woman would be lucky in the 1960s to find somebody that solid. So age wouldn't necessarily be, a, be an issue. He was exceptional. He was exceptional. And, and, you know, something that is so obvious that we haven't even said it is he is so handsome. You know, I've been talking about in terms of, like, you know, the character he plays and guess who's coming to dinner, you know, this uh, professional and this and that, yada, yada, yada. But you know what? What I should have just said right up front is he's so good looking. He's so handsome. Mm -hmm. Who could say no to him? Let him be 37 years old. He's a catch. <laughs> and Marie, I use the word zeitgeist all the time. The, the spirit of the time, spirit of the age. I use guess who's coming to dinner in a course I teach on Hollywood in, in the 1960s because it really speaks to that. I use in the heat of the night in the course I've done on African-Americans in cinema. You know, I use these films because they are zeitgeist films. In The Heat of the Night, for instance, he plays a homicide detective from Philadelphia 
who goes down south to investigate a case, and he's up against this white sheriff played by Rod Steiger. Talk about racial conflict, and, and two of them head-to-head -head that way. And his, the uh, character played by Poitier is named Virgil Tibbs. And of course, in terms of white Southerners, well, you know, he's an interloper, he's an outsider, he's meddling in our affairs, what's he doing here? So the racial antagonism is like off the charts, and it's sort of like, well, what do they call you? This And he has that one of those all-time great lines, you know, they call me Mr. Tibbs. I mean, the, the fact that he has that presence, that gravitas. And in that film, when he goes up against the white sheriff, he, you know, for all the humanism I was talking about with Sidney Poitier, he stands his ground. I don't want to, like, make it seem like he's not that. He will stand his ground and be tough and aggressive when he needs to be. And he actually slaps a character in the film. And that's like, whoa, I mean, from the perspective of, of a traditional, you know, white Southerner to have this man stand up and say, you know, I'm Mr. Tibbs, call me Mr. Tibbs, and to actually like physically, you know, slap somebody, hit somebody like that. That, speaking of zeitgeist, that was a, a, a slap that was part of the zeitgeist of that era, to stand up for your rights that way and not to take it anymore. So Poitier could be tough like that when he needed to be. And, and his performance is really strong there. You can see why the film won the Academy Award for Best Picture. I mean, it's really well acted by, by Rod Steiger and Sidney Poitier, and it's really, it's, and Norman Joseph does a really good job directing it. I mean, I think of the three films he made in 67, it's easily the best of the three. From an acting, well, the acting's good in all of them, but I mean, from an acting perspective, from a directing perspective, and, and a scripting perspective, it's the best of the three. I guess it's coming to dinner as a Zeitgeist film has its advantages and disadvantages. You know, Zeitgeist films can really hit the moment in the moment. They can seem dated sometimes years later. Guess who's coming to dinner can seem a little dated, a little creaky, a little obvious. Don't you think, Summary, there are times where it's just like, oh gosh, I know why they're doing this and I, I know, uh, you know, I'm all with it because I, you know, that's how I vote too. But doesn't it sometimes seem a little too obvious with the way it's put together? It does by today's standards, but I don't think it was at the time. I think at the time it was amazingly daring which is also sort of quaint when you look back on it. Also to see, you know, Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy doing their last movie and she's basically dragging him through it, you know, so they can do one more movie together. It, it has so many, you know, Hollywood aspects to it. But I did want to mention in terms of In the Heat of the Night for people who are going to look it up and rent it, that one of the reasons I think it works so well today is that Rod Steiger looks so much like Carol O'Connor that it makes you think of all in the family and the Archie Bunker character, which, you know, they're not related. It's not supposed to be that way, but it helps. The, it helps the movie because you sort of fill in the character or the stereotypical character, even though it's, it wasn't intended. Let me use that word zeitgeist again. I always use it so often my students want to stop me from writing it on the board. But the zeitgeist there, the character played by Steiger does look a lot like Archie Bunker. So this is like, you know, into the late 60s, by the early 70s, you know, Norman Lear with the TV show presents that kind of character. I mean, otherwise, the biographies of these characters are very different, but the ideology, the kind of racist assumptions, these are quite similar. And there's something about that. And Marie, you're absolutely right. There's something percolating. It's not intended, it's not deliberate, but somehow it's there, right? Somehow when Archie Bunker comes on American TV in the early 70s, we've seen that guy before. We've known that guy. So even though he, you know, he's, a, he's a, a worker in New York City, there are aspects of his belief system that are very close to what Rod Steiger would be spouting in, you know, just a few years earlier and then the heat of the night. I mean, that's what you're getting at, that there's something there and it just sort of carries in the, that's zeitgeist. It's like the spirit of the age, spirit of the time. It's something in the air. It's like, like pollen in the air or something. It's there. And here you see it with Archie Bunker. You're absolutely right. When I watch in the heat of the night, to myself, I start thinking about Archie Bunker. And, you know, they couldn't have planned that. It was just one of those, it's just one of those zeitgeist moments, Mike.
I also wanted to mention that in terms of that famous line, they call me Mr. Tibbs. I couldn't help but think about how close that was to the name Tubbs and Miami Vice and how the, uh, you know, the black partner was named Tubbs. I just wondered if that was kind of a, a veiled reference to that movie. It, it just seems awfully close. But I do want to shift here, Mike, to say, how do you go from the elegance and just the, uh, the craftsmanship of somebody like Sidney Poitier, who's doing a role that's kind of an everyman, and he's almost like, like a, a Jimmy Stewart character. How do you go from those sort of depictions to black exploitation, which sort of exploded and, you know, we're leading into us discussing the movie Coffee. You know, what were the intermediate steps between, between Sidney Poitier's very carefully nuanced characters to full-on, let's just go for it and bring on all the violence and all the stereotypes we can for camp? Well, Marie, think about film as a, as you do and as I do as a cultural mirror. It's very much, you know, American cinema in terms of American culture. And in the mid to late 60s, certainly, when you have people like Sidney Poitier really starring in mainstream Hollywood movies and carrying a message, you know, a very important, very necessary message that way, that's something that, you know, stays in Hollywood. I mean, there's some years are better than others, but, you know, it's something that's been in Hollywood since that period. But within the larger American culture, the civil rights movement, of which Poitier was part, became more radicalized in some ways in the very late 60s into the early 70s. And that would be a whole extended discussion we could spend hours talking about. But some of the more radical elements in Black society by the early 70s, think of you know Black Panther-type organizations and so on, some of them actually spoke very disparagingly of Sidney Poitier. They saw him as being too much of an accommodationist. And he was even called, and I have to be careful how I say this because I'm not the one saying it, but he was even called an Uncle Tom by some people then. He was very hurt by that. He was very much part of the civil rights movement. I mean, March on Washington, all those things. He's there for those things, but he's not as out there, if you will, as let's say Harry Belafonte or something. He's there, but he's focusing on his film career, playing roles that are what we've been describing. But anyway, in the early 70s, as things take a more radical turn, that is reflected in what becomes known as black exploitation. These are low-budget movies, typically. Sometimes they're actually distributed by major American studios, like American International and producers like Roger Corman and so on. They were cranking out all kinds of movies. This film, Coffee, from 1973 that we're going to talk about now, was made by American International, one of these low-budget operations. You know what? It was distributed by MGM. The same MGM that did all the glossy musicals and all, all the uh, sweet idealized white picket fence movies, they're distributing this black exploitation film. Another attribute of, of black, because, you know, going for the box office, going for a black audience specifically, you know, in downtown theaters. I saw a lot of these movies in downtown theaters where I was the only white person in the audience. I'll put it out there, right? You know, I mean, I, I'm sitting there because I want to see this movie, but it's not made for me, quotation marks or anything. It's not made for me necessarily. These movies, ironically, oftentimes, most often were made. So in front of the camera, it's mostly black talent, and the white characters oftentimes are the villains. And, and the villains would be someone in uniform, be a police officer or a government official, whatever, a corrupt person, right? So that kind of dynamic. But behind the camera, it was oftentimes, you know, white directors like Jack Hill and screenwriters and so on. So that kind of dynamic there. And so a movie like, like Coffee is speaking to at least two cultural currents. One of them is the fact that black culture, if you will, in a political sense, is becoming a bit more radicalized or extensively more radicalized late 60s into the 70s. You see that reflected in black exploitation movies, where the underdog, the hero, is typically an anti-hero. 
It might be a, you know, a pimp, it might be a, a, a gangster, it might be a, a woman who's been wronged and so on. You know, anything that, that would have somebody like, you know, down and out and pushing hard to like make it or to get back. There, a lot of these are revenge dramas. This is the era when mainstream Hollywood movies like Death Wish, where you have a Charles Bronson, you know, a white character with, with a Death Wish, with a revenge-driven plot. These are the black equivalent of that. Uh, you know, you've been wrong somehow early in the film, the movie is payback and oftentimes against a white authority figure. So Coffee is very much like that. Now, one of the great stars, Tamara Dobson from Baltimore, was in movies like Cleopatra Jones, and you know there were a few actresses. So the two prongs or two currents are this. The one is that political current I've just been talking about in terms of black radical thought, if you will, as reflected in black exploitation movies. The second thought or second line of, of, of thought here has to do with feminism, specifically black feminism that typically, not always, but, but oftentimes the protagonists in these black exploitation movies were strong women who weren't gonna take it anymore. They were gonna, they were, they were gonna fight back. One of my, my favorite exploitation lines is there was a movie called MMA, not particularly notable as a black exploitation film, but, but the tagline I've always remembered, the tagline was, it had a photo of, of a woman like swinging a broom, like she was fighting back with what she had in hand. And, and the tagline was, she rough, she tough, don't take no stuff. And that was the kind of thing that you would get in, in black exploitation movies. For instance, in Coffee, the movie we're talking about, Pam Greer plays a, a nurse whose sister's been turned into a heroin addict, and she's going to strike back and get back and, and so on. The advertising tagline for the film was, nurse by day and avenging angel by night. She is the baddest one chick hit squad that ever hit town. Now, I once met Pam Greer and she's a terrific person. I mean, she's just really, really endearing. But you know what? She is really strong. I mean, there's a physical presence there, and you wouldn't want to mess with her, right? When you, I was on her good side, so we had a really nice conversation, but you wouldn't want to be on her bad side. So when you see her in the movies, she might play a good character like a nurse, but if that nurse has been wronged in some way, it's a revenge drama, and she's going to get hers. And we'll talk about audience satisfaction. When you see a movie like that in a crowded theater where people are talking back to and shouting at the screen and, and just really responding to it. Now, in terms of that feminist strand, very quickly, Pam Greer oftentimes talked about this, a strong Black woman in a Black exploitation film. Here's what Pam Greer said in a much later interview from 2006. And I'm quoting directly here. The 1970s was a time of freedom and women saying they needed empowerment. My movies featured women claiming the right to fight back. Well, she does fight back, and it was her idea to hide the razor blades and other weapons in her afro, which is like one of the best funny payoffs. There's something very smart and, and aware about Pam Greer, which makes her really likable, including in this movie. But I will warn anybody who goes to watch Coffee, the other slug line for the movie was, they call her Coffee, and she'll cream you. There's a lot of nudity in this movie. Pointless, gratuitous nudity. So you have to handle the camper. Yes, very much so. And in terms of, you know, black exploitation movies, I just want to give a nod to 1987's Hollywood Shuffle, which has a lot more jokes per square inch than coffee in some ways, just because it's, you know, it came out later. But Pam Greer is wonderful in this. She's so likable, even with all of the, you know, pointless sexuality she never you never feel like she's not completely in control of the situation you know what these are very funny movies i mean they're violent but they're also funny i mean where you, you talk about the afro things you can hide in it these movies are full of things where it's like well yeah it's really violent but it was really funny the one reason why quentin tarantino loved 
black exploitation movies. And indeed, in 1997, who stars in Jackie Brown <laughs> but Pam Greer? He's paying homage to her. He's, he's, this is tribute to her. Uh, you know, he loves that kind of a movie because these movies are they're, they're low budget, they're fast, they're violent, they're funny, they're kind of shameless. And there is exploitation that can kind of hit you the wrong way sometimes. But you know what? They're not boring. That's the thing to say about black exploitation movies. You might like this and get queasy about something else, but you know what? It's not boring. Never boring. Now, did this um, have its heyday and end, or, or are they still making black exploitation movies, Mike? It's a great question. Black exploitation as a trend, as a movement, was very much early through mid seventies. I think what happens at that point is that it does sort of, you know, we go through cycles, trends, whatever. That sort of plays out after those years. But you know what? In some ways, mainstream movies started to incorporate some of those very elements, right? So you oftentimes then will get a big budget Hollywood movie that essentially would be a black exploitation type subject, but with a much larger budget and an all-star cast. So I think what happens there is that, that you know, it probably would have played out anyway, as things tend to do in terms of popular taste, but it was sort of enfolded or, or incorporated, I think actually into mainstream films. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right about that. But if you want to see, you know, classic black exploitation and what they did and how they did it, coffee and or Hollywood Shuffle will give you a, a real good background on, on that topic. Which brings us to the end of the show. But don't forget to check out our other podcasts on dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you there connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.